Well, thank you for joining us. I hope you're enjoying lunch. We'll have a quick word of prayer. And please feel free um, to, if you need another drink or something else, um, please finish your meal. But let's pray. Lord our God, we give you thanks that we might gather together as family and friends and be about your work in this world. Your word tells us that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, that all around us the mark of your grace and love is truly found. And so we rejoice, O Lord, that we can look back at our own story and see how faithful you have been, see how good you have been, to see what you have wrought from the people called Methodist. We pray today that some of that would rub off on us, for we know it is our heritage, something to be proud of, something to keep alive and vibrant. I pray that you bless these people, bless this time. We give you thanks for the food and the hands that prepared it. And most of all, we pray as our bodies have been nourished, so too are our souls. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we have Wesley in England. Remember, we've had this, this massive movement that began after the Thirty Years' War in Europe, ending in 1648. It was a war between Protestants and Catholics, and it was the, remains the, bloodiest, most costly war the Europeans have ever fought, which is staggering when you think about what we did in World War I and World War II. This just about uh, depopulated uh, central Germany. Uh, it cut the European population by half. And so there really was this, this crunch, this soul-searching following this war as Europe begins to put itself back together. Now, we've talked about one strain of culture, a revival in the church called pietism, to be more pious, to really search for this internal relationship with God. It's not just a matter of going to the state church and taking communion, but there's got to be more. If you're a follower of Christ, you should become more like Christ. You should, your life should get better. You should want to sing songs about God. You should want to pray. You should be in Bible studies. This is not just the job for the priests or the archbishops or all that. It's, it's for every person. And so this movement will come out in a, in a very powerful way. We've seen it move west. It's influenced Wesley. Uh, critical moments in his life when he was going across the Atlantic to America to be a missionary. He encounters Germans that were part of this pietist movement. He encounters them in Savannah, Georgia. And most importantly, we talked about last week, when Wesley saw himself as an ultimate failure, even though he was an Oxford-educated Anglican priest, Anglican being the Church of England, he knew there was something missing. Inside, there was no flame. There was no fire. It, it was just business. It was, it was lacking. And so he goes, at the invitation of his friends, to a public meeting. Uh, again, uh, not just church in church, but church outside of church. A group of these Germans again, these Moravians. And they were talking about Wesley's preface to the Book of Romans. And at this moment, Wesley comes 
alive. To use a term, and Steve is better at this than I am, but so many Christian terms have been corrupted, and, and we just sort of let them go. And I, it, it, We need to recover them. But the language that Wesley will use is biblical language, that he was born again that his spirit was connected with God's spirit. He knew that Christ had died for him. Last night we were talking about uh, the cross and flame. And you guys know this, this emblem, right? It's been our emblem since 1968. But some of the symbolism behind it escapes us. Of course, we have the, the cross of Christ, but the flame next to it is this pietist impulse, this idea that you've got to be more than just a churchgoer. There's got to be transformation, love, connection. And that all stems from Wesley, in his language, uh, having his heart strangely warmed. Now, this movement is massive. Uh, Wesley is going to play a huge part in it, and we'll spend the rest of today talking about him. But I do want to keep before you that this movement of pietism moving west, coming towards America, is going to uh, influence a lot of people. In fact, one of the two pillars, I think, that create America comes, one of them comes from pietism. And Wesley had a good friend we introduced last week um, that is going to go to America. He's going to turn over his preaching ministry in England, and he is going to America. Perhaps you'll recognize him. So we've got a quick video that will, will set us up for Wesley. George Whitfield made a greater impact in his ministry in America than in England. And in the 18th century, apart from the monarchy, he was perhaps the best known name on the whole of the East Coast. Virtually every man, woman, and child had heard the great itinerant priest at least once. He preached over 18,000 sermons in the course of his life. At the age of 55, in 1770, he was still preaching regularly despite ill health. He once famously said, I would rather wear out than rust out. Isn't that he died good? whilst on a trip to America in Massachusetts and is buried in the crypt of the Old South Presbyterian Church, Newburyport, Massachusetts. John Wesley, on the other hand, chose to stay here in England. And through the course of his long ministry, he would have a huge impact here. After he settled in London, John Wesley lived in this house here. However, he spent most of his time away from here, traversing the country on horseback, preaching and visiting the numerous small Bible study groups that he had set up. Through the course of his life, it is estimated that he traveled over 240,000 miles on horseback, often reading as he rode so as not to waste time. Texting and driving. He once said, the world is my parish. These words are engraved on his statue outside his home. He explained this by saying that wherever he was in the world, it was his duty to witness and minister there. 
prayer was an integral part of John Wesley's life and he wanted a special place to pray so he had an extension built on the back of his house. You can see it today around the back protruding out the back. You know, sometimes today, those of us who own houses, we sometimes will build a bigger kitchen, a bigger living area, or a bigger garage if we have some money. And yet Wesley took the time and money that he had to build a special place dedicated for prayer. This room is sometimes called the engine room of Methodism. And you can visit it today and pray there where John Wesley used to pray every day. How simple it was. It is sometimes said that big things come in small packages. John Wesley was only five foot three or 161 centimeters, yet he was a giant of a man. He never intended to start his own denomination, and yet the movement that started as just a collective of small Bible study groups mushroomed into its own denomination. He died on the 2nd of March, 1791, and as he lay dying with his friends surrounded him, he grasped their hands and said repeatedly, farewell, farewell. Then summoning up all his strength, he said, the best of all is, God is with us. Then raising his arms one last time, he said, the best of all is, God is with us. To Wesley, it was granted to arouse the church in England from a state of stagnation and backsliding. And yet he was faithful in this duty. Two things that stand out from his life and ministry are the importance of the preaching of the word and the importance of small group Bible study. These two methods, I believe divinely ordained, if done today, will cause the same revival in our lives and ministry that they caused back then. Wherever you are, whether it's preaching the word in your home church or in your home area, or whether it's doing small group Bible study in your family or in your home or in your workplace or amongst your friends, be faithful in doing these things for that we can have the same revival that Wesley had several hundred years ago and God can use those methods again today in our lives. And that is... Steve and I's prayer as we move forward to be able to keep that spirit of Wesley alive so that there are groups that we share our lives together. There are Bible studies. It's not what the pastors know, it's what the congregation knows and puts into practice. Wesley's influence on England and on the United States and George Whitfield, and we'll talk about him. Have you heard of that name, George Whitfield? He is... Uh, who, who particularly claims George? Do you know? Baptists. Um, which, in, in a sense, he is kind of the forefather. So it's interesting, the kissing cousins, um, we, we go way, way back. But there's a lot of history we have to go through there. But Wesley's influence on England is tremendous. And Pastor Steve's going to take us through how he did that. But I just want to set the historical stage for you. I've been... Since uh, the Thirty Years' War, I've been helping you follow the historical path of pietism. And this was really a fork in the road. As all people will do, uh, following a tragic, horrendous nightmare event like the Thirty Years' War, society sort of divides. And there is, there's a fork in the road in European culture that happens. One is the pietists. That, again, they turn back to the church. They want a real relation. The other gets eventually to be termed the European Enlightenment. 
And it was a reaction, in many ways, against the church, against the excesses of Protestant Catholic hatred, against the slaughter. This Enlightenment will begin early 17th or early 18th century, early 1700s. It will really focus on reason, tolerance amongst Catholics and Protestants and Lutherans and Calvinists. And it really tries to elevate reason, rationality as the greatest value for European civilization. Now, if you know anything about the Europeans today, uh, this Enlightenment idea has stuck. And they have continually moved away from the Pietist tradition, and this Enlightenment has, has stayed on. In many ways, much of this Enlightenment thought also influences the early United States. Uh, our founding fathers are, are greatly influenced by this. Reason is, is driving them. And it's not that the Enlightenists are anti-religious, um, but they do see it as, as a sort of civil religion, something to be in the background. So America has these two twines that will be intertwined together. Uh, This Enlightenment idea that gives us the Constitution, a republic, and then this pietism that our heart is Christianity. And it'll be really powerful for us to explore this. But to leave us in England for right now, uh, Wesley is aware of this Enlightenment movement uh, and realize how destabilizing this can be for monarchies. The monarchy tradition comes out of Middle Age Europe. In many ways, that's what led to the Thirty Years' War. Whatever faith your prince, your noble had, is the faith that you had. And so that's why they went to war, to to claim other areas for each other. The the Enlightenists were trying to say, "Let's, let's step back from that and let people have freedom of religion. Uh, Let's let them do what they want. Remember, Wesley, like the video said, never intends to create another church. None of the pietists did. They didn't want to create a domination. Steve will tell you about it next week. Wesley was very upset with us because he wanted to reform the church, not make more of them. The church in England was a pillar for the monarchy, as it was through most of Europe. You you serve the king because that's what God wanted. Now, in the background of these two uh, events happening, you have the Industrial Revolution that begins about 1750. I don't know if you remember your history back in American or world history. It's, uh, it's probably the greatest technological shift that we've had in our world, even above what we've had in modern times. Before the Industrial Revolution, 80% of societies were dedicated towards agriculture. The remaining 20% was producing goods or ruling. Any guess in American society today what percentage of us are still farmers? I was shocked. I had to look it up. I have 2%. Any any other takers? Five. Five. I wish. Less than 1%. 1.03. This is beginning in the Industrial Revolution, where an interesting phenomenon we had. What did the Thirty Years' War do to Europe, primarily? Depopulate it. So in Europe, 
at the beginning, let's say 1800, they are on a similar technological development level with China and India. But what Europe has is cheap energy in coal, and it's closer to the surface. Now, if you were a coal miner in China or India, what would you do? You've got people to mine it. You've got plenty of people. In Europe, because there are fewer people, you pay higher wages. Now, this European attempt to solve the labor problem is going to lead us to some interesting places and some not good places. Um, what's one of the answers to the labor shortage for Europe? Technology is the good one. Slavery. Uh, to have these, these farms where fewer people are doing it. But the Industrial Revolution, they figure out that they need to get to this coal, and the coal mines are usually flooded. So they start to create machines to pump the water out. And you have the coal there, and you have the water there. And so it's not very long before they have steam engines. They're pumping the water out of the mines in order to get more coal. So high labor costs, but low resource costs. This really begins to transform society where you can mass produce. Now, in places like France, pietism had no impact. It was a Protestant movement for the most part. It was resisted by the Catholics in France because they, their king was French, or the king was uh, Catholic, and they, they didn't want this. And so what happens at the end of the 17th century in France? A revolution in which these Enlightenment ideas of republic replace monarchy. And it, despite the romance sometimes we attach to it, was an enormously violent and cruel time in history when people are just being slaughtered right and left. As the monarchy fell, so did the status of the church because that's all that was connected. The people didn't have this, this personal pietist relationship. This impulse is going to go to England as well. You have the Industrial Revolution going on. Uh, people are changing. Uh, their, their lifestyle is changing. Uh, the monarchy is still trying to hold on. The Enlightenments are saying, hey, we need something different than kings and all of that. And Wesley, quite unintentionally, well, we, we can talk about this. Maybe it was intentionally. I don't know. He's trying to reform. He's trying to bring Christ back. Wesley will create the middle class in England. Through many of the things that Steve will talk about in his classes where he's telling you, you know what? Don't drink all of your paycheck. You're going to these mines to work and you get paid. And it's different than a farmer working all year. Uh, you, you get paid every couple of weeks. So don't, don't drink. It's not good for you or your family. Wesley said, save your money. Save all you can. Give all you can. And what's the other one? First one is make all you can. Ma make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Uh, Wesley says, be educated. One of the things that Wesley wrote, which blows our mind today, are encyclopedias. He wanted that education that he had to be shared with a wide range of society. Again, the responsibility for your soul is you. It's not some priest in a church somewhere. They help you, but you're, you're going to be involved in this. So Wesley really begins 
maybe intentionally, he's trying to create revival, good Christian souls, but he creates this, this class that has money, has education, has control. They're, they're not being eaten up by vices. This acts as a buffer that saves England. The revolutionaries will come to England just like they were in France, but they run across, it's not just poor uh, people that they find subject to the king and the church, but they find these church members that are saying, no, violence is not the answer. Uh, following the way of Christ is the answer. This it will also carry over to the United States, and part of who we hope to be as, as a Christian nation comes from the same influence of Wesley. So please understand, when God chooses you and calls you, man, there's lots of directions this can go. Not only to help reform the church, keep it alive, but to change the direction of nations. England has changed. America has changed. So what we want to look at is, how did he do it? What were the actual nuts and bolts of when he gathered people together? Remember, he still wanted them to go to church. Go to church on Sunday. I don't have a church. I'm not a church. Um, but what I'm going to do with you on Wednesdays, or the days they would meet, is get you ready for church. You're going to learn, you're going to grow, you're going to change your life so that what happens in your relationship with Christ is deeper. So that's the history. So ponder this. Um, for all that we've been talking about, there is this insistence on Wesley uh, and on the part of the Methodists that there is a form to our life with God, but there's also a power. The power of God when you think about it, primarily comes from the presence of God. One of the ways that we talk about this on Sundays is that when you come into church, I'll try to get you to pause and recognize that we are in the presence of God. Right? That power, that presence, has in that mediated to us? And it is a word that is central to John Wesley's understanding of following Jesus and what he learns from reading the Bible. And it's the word grace. And maybe some of y'all have seen me mess around with my grace football before. Uh, but the reason this, I think this metaphor works so well is, David, if you are drinking a cup of tea right now and I throw the grace of God at you, what are you going to do while you're drinking your tea? You're probably not going to catch it, right? Or if you are distracted by many things, like uh, going to the bars uh, after you get your paycheck, or what other, whatever other vice you may be engaged in to numb the pain in your own soul, you will miss the grace of God. So what John Wesley did was to create a structure so that people, not forced, but willingly could engage in what I call route running. You know, wide receivers or receivers who catch the ball in, in football, they run routes to get where? To open space so that they can catch the ball unimpeded by the defense. Right? And so the system that Wesley created was to get people to places 
where they could experience the power and the presence and the transforming grace of God. To sanctify them. Remember that is remember what we talked about last week. Is that that was what John Wesley believed that the Methodists were raised up for. Was to reveal to the world that people could actually really for sure be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Whether you want to call it sanctification, Christian perfection, holiness. But that's what the power of God is all about. The presence of God is not just to make you feel warm and fuzzy, but it is to drive you to have this desire to love your enemies. That's what the grace of God does. So he did it in several ways. It's kind of a three-tiered system of how he did it. Uh, he built, like, and we talked about it a little bit last week, he, he started building these preaching houses. And... Uh, these sermons that would get preached in these preaching houses, they did not happen on Sunday, but they happened all the other days of the week, and people would go to these preaching houses at seven in the morning and five o'clock in the or, or six seven no five in the morning and seven in the evening to hear sermons. That that was their content. Now the guy on the video, I understand why he is saying it, but Wesley's small groups that is the heart of what it means to be a Methodist back in the early days, is to attend what Wesley called class meetings. They are not Bible study groups. There, there is really no content delivered in those meetings. So we go to Bible study. Uh, we go to a small group, uh, kind of in, in, in our church culture these days. There's always content that drives it. Not in Wesley's groups. There were questions that drove the groups. Relationships and questions. These groups, these class meetings were about 12 people. I wonder where they got that from, right? A leader of 12 people, yeah. And um, they would sing a hymn and they would start asking each other questions. The goal of this group was to look over one another's souls in love. They would ask each other this question. How does your soul prosper? Like, I'll say it these days, and you might hear Pastor Kurt and I say it. How is it with your soul? Right. And you know what we normally get? Fine. It's good. <laughs> Fine. Brothers and sisters, that would not suffice in an early Methodist class meeting. Now, your soul may be fine, but it would be, you would then just describe the, the nature of your week and where you saw God at work, where you sensed uh, the temptation to fall right in with the culture, where and how you resisted, where you sensed God leading you where you sensed God's love for you and you could articulate what are the things that, that followers of Jesus want to know we, we want to know that we're good with God we want to it's, it's the, the doctrine of assurance we want to feel we have this, this need 
that I think is implanted in us by God to feel as if we are safe and secure in our relationship with the one who has made us and has given us a purpose to reflect his likeness out into the world. We want to feel that, right? And so as you would share the state of your soul with those 12 other people, you by willingly going to this meeting would give space for them, and then I quote, to advise, reprove, comfort, and exhort you and your life with God relative to what you have shared concerning how your soul prospers. And you thought being vulnerable was a 21st century construct in our culture. That is real vulnerability. That is what the Methodists were doing that literally saved England from a bloodbath. That made America... It became, and we're going to get more to this next week when we start, when we come across the pond and we begin to talk about how the Methodist movement shaped American culture. Um, that, uh, that these people, they committed to meeting together and having these sometimes difficult conversations with each other. You could not be a Methodist unless you committed to this. And if there, and if you begin to miss, the leader would check in on you. And if you miss too much, guess what? You were kicked out uh, because you're not committed to it. Uh, you're not committed to this growth in holiness. And so uh, that was the first level, the class meeting. The second level was the band meeting. If you had this, it wasn't required to be a Methodist, uh, but the second level, if you wanted to continue your pursuit, your desire for holiness of being made perfect in love, uh, you would join a band meeting. These band meetings had four to five people in them. They were uh, they were not a mixed group. Uh, males. Male band meetings, female band meetings. And the leading question for the band meeting, anybody, anybody, anybody? What known sins have you committed since the last time we met? Boy, you thought the class meetings were a vulnerable place. Uh, it's like taking the book of James. Remember last week, what is the foundational doctrinal statement of the Methodist that the Bible is the sole foundation of all of our faith in life. Right? That our heart is to be transformed by the word of God and it's to have an expression in faith in our lives. Well, the book of James talks about something being very, very helpful for our life. That we actually become aware of the sins the ways in which we are rebelling against the love of God and we tell that to another person or for other people. And why? Why would we do that? Well, we don't do that 
now because we feel shame. We don't do that now because we feel like our relationship with God is something between me and God alone. And so we resist being vulnerable with our sins. And so we don't apply the book of James to our life. And we kind of hide behind an individualized faith. But what does the book of James say? James, the brother of Jesus, right? He was pretty close to him, right? He, he says, confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. There's this, 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 whenever we name how we're rebelling against God, Satan becomes disarmed. And that frees then God's grace, right? To heal us from what led to that. Because one of the things that we are tempted to do, right, brothers and sisters, is that we're tempted to, to say the problem is in the act of the sin. Like if we lie, if we look at pornography, whatever the sin may be. But, well, there's about two steps back that led us to make that choice. That needs, and that's what needs to be healed. What did we believe about God that led us to think that we needed to tell that lie or look at the pornography, whatever it may be? And so it was these groups that gave people intentional space to confess their sins with each other in a safe place so that they could experience, be reminded that in the name of Jesus you are forgiven. And to be reminded that they were people who did not have to live that kind of life. Pretty deep and serious stuff, right? Where did that all go? And we'll, uh, I'll finish up my part, Kurt, and you can conclude with this. Around the time of the Civil War, the uh, class meeting stopped being required to be a Methodist. Remember early on from the early days and through the early part of the, the birth of our nation to be a Methodist and remember what was the largest uh, spiritual movement in the United States for its first 70 years? There was more Methodists than anybody else. And they all went to a class meeting every week. And they talked about how their soul prospered. That stopped becoming required. And instead, something that we're familiar with took its place. Started taking its place Sunday school. Nothing inherently wrong with Sunday school. But think about what we've done. We have taken the relational exchange of talking about the state of our soul and we have, for lack of a better word, started to hide behind content. Now, content's important. No doubt about it. we got to learn what the Bible says. But our movement started losing traction then. So think about it. That movement became a buffer that transformed a nation and led to the beginning of a nation here in the United States that was full of joy and full of life and abundance. We live in a nation now 
that is literally at each other at each other's throat. Right? We know this. We are a nation divided. That division is spilling over into our church. Could it be that if we consider what it would be like for us to be more like we were at the beginning, could it be that the Methodists once again could spare a nation from literally being at each other's throats and destroying each other? Because we are willing to truly look over one another's souls in love. Ask the questions. Answer the questions and believe that the grace of God is delivered from person to person. Listen to this quote. This is what John Wesley said uh, way back in the day. said, solitary religion is not to be found anywhere. Holy solitaries and Basically, what he's saying when he says holy solitaries is that when people say, my relationship with God is between me and God. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. (laughs) The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social by interacting with others. No holiness, but social holiness. And this doesn't mean the so, like engaging in social justice issues. Social holiness is me placing myself before Kim and asking the question, or Kim asking me, Steve, how did your soul prosper? And me being honest with her and telling her the answer. Right? No holiness, but social holiness. Faith working by love is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. Being made perfect. Holiness. Sanctification. What Wesley is saying is we can't do that unless we are vulnerable with each other. Take us home, Kurt. (coughs) Excuse me. So it's extraordinary to think that you would have developed around you a group of friends, more than that, people that you're living life with, that know the depths of who you are and love you. I mean, we still, I see forming those groups around the church. Uh, Sometimes we do them a little more haphazardly, but to be with a group of people that are also striving to be like Christ and are always going to be there with you and for you. I know, I think of the partner Sunday school class. You guys live life together. It's that kind of real strong connection that Wesley says makes the difference, is, is the key to what we're doing. Now remember, he's still sending him to church on Sunday. He's still saying you need to grow in your prayer, grow in your fasting. He's also telling these groups, remember, we've got to do good. Not just for ourselves. It's not just about self-actualization, although that's huge. It's about us being the, the Christ that changed the world. So this, these societies will do crazy things like they bought a cannon factory. They needed more space in order to meet, and so they bought uh, closed down cannon, cannon 
factory. And they turned it into one of these prayer houses. It's called the Armory, which I think is about the coolest name ever for a church, right? That's part of our, our Wesleyan tradition, the Armory. So it was this former canon place. But again, people were coming from all over to be involved in one of these groups because your life changed, not only spiritually, but economically, socially. These groups are mixing very different kinds of people. Where does Wesley come from? Remember, where did he go to school? Oxford. You think A&M has um, an exclusive kind of we're, we're Aggies? Then there's Oxford, right? In their own league. I mean, he, his father was part of the religious establishment. He was a priest as well. Wesley was a priest. You know, hobnobbing as a lecturer with Oxford. And then he's reaching out, we talked about a little bit, to coal miners. Now we might think, well, a coal miner is just the poorest of the poor. They, they were not. This was a new industry. Again, they were sort of the up-and-coming working class. So Wesley is taking, for example, coal miners, and he's putting them in a room with Oxford people. And they're living life together. They're studying Christ together. They're starting to discover, you know, we're not that different. English society, still to this day, but very much in the 18th century, was very stratified. Um, But you have nobles that are joining Wesley's groups. You have people that are recovering from rum addictions joining his groups. And they're mixing together. This is what I mean. He's creating a new class of people that want to do good. And so the same thing that happened in America first happens in England. These groups go out and they start building orphanages. And they start building schools. Not state schools. In fact, there was no notion of that. Um, But this is not the government doing it. This is the church. And we do it because we're trying to be Christ-like. They built hospitals. They tried very hard, and they eventually will, uh, end debtors' prisons. So if you couldn't pay your debts in England, they threw you in prison. Which is a bit crazy, because how are you supposed to play it off? Um, so the, the Methodists will get uh, heavily involved in that. Yeah, John Wesley's dad went to that debtor's prison twice. So I mean, that, that's free. So there, there was some some family history to that. So again, Wesley trying to bring revival is not only helping the church, but he's he's changing society. Uh, as, like Steve has said, he's a, this little buffer um, the, between the radical elements on both sides of society, where maybe instead of going this way or this way, we go this way. That we seek after Christ, and that all the other problems that we get crazy about can be solved. Uh, you guys know, early Industrial Revolution, there was a lot of exploitation of workers. I mean, it, it, it was bad, it was hard. And then along come Wesley's people, and again, they're not agitators, they're not revolutionaries, they're Christians that are saying, hey, we can do better here. There was pressure on the English government. You know, the parliament's got to have more power. We need a constitution. We, we need something other than the Magna Carta. And again, Methodists are saying, hey, yeah, we, we, we can make these reforms, but let's do it in a Christ-like way. Let's not be violent. Let's not be destructive. 
And so it, it was the leaven, if you will, that Jesus talks about. Just a little bit of yeast can change the whole. Uh, often we think of that as a metaphor for sin, but Jesus doesn't always use it that way. A little bit of salt uh, can, can salvage a, a, a big amount. And that's what Wesley was able to do. And he will import that into America, which is where we'll pick up next week. So it was our finest hour, really, to stop and think about it. Do we have questions? I know we kind of went through a lot today. One of the great ironies, Wesley never wanted to leave the Church of England. And uh, in the United States, he well, Steve will get into that. He, he was upset with us, but question. Steve, Just have to look them up online. It's real easy. I mean, they're they're in the book of discipline of our church at the at the very beginning. Uh, but really, it's just it's really it, for the class meeting. It's just those two things. Uh, how does your soul prosper? And um, and it's giving an answer beyond what we would just say fine or whatever, just like I've said. But then you you then intentionally give space for the others in the group to correct you, to encourage you, to challenge you. Um, those types of things. In the band meeting questions, there's a four. Uh, what known sins have you committed since our last meeting? Second question. What temptations have you met with? So not only are you confessing your sins, you're confess- confessing how you almost sinned. For number three, how were you delivered? Like what? Because somebody else is going to face that same temptation. So how did you resist? Number four, what have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be sin or not? Wow. So you can look those up online if you're interested in writing writing those down. Uh, but it's it's our hope that in the fall that we can start launching some of these groups that are going to uh, be intentional. We're not going to require people all of a sudden who've been a part of our church for years to be a part of a class meeting. We're not going to do that, but we're going to offer it to give you space if you are ready to make this next step in your life with God. Believing that if it worked back then, that it could be something that could work now to change our lives, to change our city. And it's not formulaic. It takes time to develop these. It takes time uh, to develop the relationships. I mean, imagine your good, good friends that you can talk to about anything. When life's hard, it's rough, you're able to reach out to them. What Wesley was trying to do is, is create that under the umbrella of the church, that as everybody is growing with Christ, you're, you have a place where you can really say, I've had a hard week, and you know what? I almost messed up again. I mean, it's so freeing from the self-deception that takes place so often in religion. Right? We have to pretend that we're something we're not. And Wesley was trying to free us. Let's, let's be who we really are, but let's grow uh, in who we really are with Christ. So. It's exactly. It, That's I'm, where they got it from. It is. That's right. Yeah. Who's been on a mass walk? I mean, is it? Yeah. And what do you do after your walk? Reunion, Reunion groups. 
this is exactly yeah. what we're talking about. And, and another thing, for those of y'all who are in recovery, um, where do you think recovery groups kind of are based out of? I mean, there's a reason why you go to recovery groups. It's so that you have this connection with other people who are going through the same thing that you were going through so you can be healed. Right? So, uh, we put different names on things, but think about it. This is the way God has made us to be for each other together. Right? We can't go at it alone. Pietism will do a tremendous amount. So Pastor Kurt is not going to be with us next week, but he promises he's going to go to some of these places that we saw in the video and take videos up for us. And so maybe he can... So we'll be in London, yeah. Share something witty with us from your experience there. So if I don't get arrested, it's all be good. (laughs) So. So may the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Amen. Amen. Have a great day. See you next week. Oh, one more thing. Stop. If we were to continue these meetings through July, how many of y'all would keep coming? All right. We're going to keep doing it through July. So go ahead. Keep going. All right. Very good. We'll look forward to it.